on WMNF with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And answering the phones for us today is Irene. If you want to join our conversation, call us at 813-239-9663, and Irene will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Today's guest has been making waves in Tampa for nearly 40 years. Lena Young-Green is on the board of the Tampa Heights Civic Association, founder of the Tampa Heights Junior Civic Association, co-founder of the Coalition for Community Gardens, and co-founder of Green Artery Incorporated, which is dedicated to completing a 22-mile perimeter trail around central Tampa. She also served for nearly 20 years as the legislative aide to James Hargard, both in the House of Representatives and the State Senate. So she knows everybody in town. <laughs> and those are just a few of her affiliations as one of the city's most consistent and committed neighborhood activists. Thanks for being here, Lena. Thanks for having me. In in 2014, Lena's husband, Arthur Green, died at the hands of the Tampa Police Department when officers restrained him during a routine traffic stop that was the result of a diabetic seizure. After eight years of legal battles, the city and the Green family finally settled the case in July. As a result of Arthur Green's death, a state law was passed to provide training to police officers and how to recognize a diabetic health emergency. We'll be talking about that a little later in the hour. But first, Lena, let's talk about your community leadership and involvement. Um, today, a WMNF tweet referred to, you, referred to you as a legend of Tampa. And I would say that that is entirely true, having watched you over the years standing up to speak at City Hall and in the county commission chambers on a whole host of issues. You are always there and you are always fighting for what you believe in. It's really a thrill to be talking to you today. Um, you've done plenty of work citywide and even countywide, uh, but a particular focus has been Tampa Heights. Um, tell us how you ended up in that neighborhood when you came to Tampa all those years ago, back in the early 80s. Well, great. Thank you again for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to share some of the work that we have done in our neighborhoods and in our communities. Uh, About 40 years ago, uh, after having lived up north for a while and having some other issues, we decided it was time to move to a warmer climate. Mm-hmm. I'm originally from this from the country of Belize and Florida, Tampa is the weather is much closer. You were in New Jersey, so you had a cold winter and decided yeah. I'm moving towards there's a some sun. Well that and some <laughs> other reasons. I lived up there for eleven years. And but then coming to Tampa, because we've always been a family, generations actually, of community workers. We were always taught that what we do in our lives must matter. And so coming to Tampa, we decided we had to find a community, a neighborhood that would need our work and need the the kind of assistance that we think we could bring. Our children were small and we needed to continue having them learn their responsibility to their fellow men and to their community. 
So looking at Tampa, having visited earlier and looking at Tampa, we discovered that Tampa Heights was an area back then that really, really could need, could bring, could help with the work that we want to bring. A place where you could make a difference. Really could make a difference. Um, 40 years ago, Tampa was suffering from the urban decay and all of the issues that urban cores have. And so we found a house and we moved into that neighborhood and went to work right away. And so ever since then, we live in the same house that we bought back then. And Tampa has been our home, our commitment. It has been the place where it really had the space for us to do the kind of work that we wanted to. And it absolutely allowed the opportunity for our sons to learn what it is to actually take care of their communities. And for those of you not familiar with Tampa Heights, it was, I think, Tampa's first suburb. It's just north of the downtown area. And so when you moved here in uh, the early 80s, what did you find and what were the first issues you decided to confront? Um, Driving through Tampa Heights, Early 80s, there were a lot of trash. We had a lot of homeless folks. We had a lot of dilapidated housing. We had uh, Tampa being the oldest suburb of the city of Tampa, still has and had back then the beautiful old homes, Mm -hmm. big old homes. But back then, many of them were divided into rooms, individual rooms that were rented out. And the issues that happened because of those, there were a lot of um, crime, a lot of negative activities. And um, those beautiful homes were really just really dilapidated at that time. So that's what the community looked like when we moved. And the city had been actively... uh doing everything it could to uh, force homeless people and, and some of the agencies that served them out of the downtown area, and they ended up in Tampa Heights. Um, so that was, only, that was among the issues you were dealing with. And so what, what did you do initially? What were your first, uh, what was the focus of your, was it crime or was it? Uh, well, when we, when we moved in, um, we lived right across from the park, Robles Park, Another reason for Tampa Heights being attractive for us is because Robles Park was one of the very few parks in the city of Tampa that actually had a little body of water. Water is important to us coming Mm -hmm. from the Caribbean and living on the Caribbean Sea. We needed to have water close by. Uh, We bought a house across from Robles Park. And first thing we started was a neighborhood watch and got to the police department and did all the work that was needed to do a, to start a neighborhood watch. Um, my children still remember having to go out and take flyers and being chased by dogs, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, but always having to work in the community. And we started the neighborhood watch. Uh, we ran that for about a year. We walked around, got all the neighborhoods, all the residents around to join the part joined the neighborhood watch and we started having monthly meetings 
right at Robles Park Community Center. And that was the beginning of our time there. And you also, um, was that around the time that you joined the Civic Association, the Tampa Heights Civic Association? When we first moved there, we didn't know there was a Civic Association. But after being working with the with the Neighborhood Watch, we talked to the Fernandezes, Martha and Rosemary Fernandez. They were the Neighborhood Watch um, down on the south side. And then they told us, well, there is a Civic Association. So after we found out about the Civic Association, a year or so later, we decided that we would go ahead and join up with the Civic Association which was mostly active on the south side of Tampa Heights. But we were able to connect where we were with the Civic Association and um, merged in the Neighborhood Watch for a while. And then that's when we became fully active with the Neighborhood Watch. And you're still involved with the Tampa Heights Civic Association. Absolutely. And in 1998, you talked about one of the things that was important to you was instilling in your your sons this... um, the importance of being engaged in your community. And in 1998, you founded the Tampa Heights Junior Civic Association. So tell us a little bit about that um, and what your thinking was behind that and what's going on with it now. Well, when we, like I said, our children were always involved with us. That was another reason to, to keep children close by and have them doing positive things and not have to worry about them being off somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so they were always very involved. We um, would drag the children around with us to civic association meetings and they had no interest in what we were talking about, <laughs> cleaning up the bottles on the street, although they were cleaning up, but they had no interest in all the discussions and the elected officials coming to the meetings and so on. So, but they had to be there. They weren't going to be left somewhere else. So then we decided that we would create a junior civic association. Before we actually started, we found the United Way had a small grant for $2,000 around 1994. And we applied and we got $2,000 for a summer. And during that summer, we created something called a few good men and women going mm-hmm. from the military term that was being used then and walked around the community and we got children to sign up for that. And these were the few good men and women, young men and women, they were, they were children. And on Saturdays, their jobs was to come out, clean up, and um, they had to be on time. They had to have good behavior And one of the rewards was that from that $2,000, they got a stipend. And in addition to that, we would take them around to visit different places as their reward. And so we continued that with keeping our children involved. And we used those because we wanted to instill in young people that as you grow older, you become employed. But there are some things that you have to give for that employment. You have to be on time. You have to have good character. You have to have your behavior. So we used all of that, not only with our children, but with the community children in order to instill those those in them. Um, In 1998, we decided it was time to actually formalize this entity. We worked with Bobby Davis, who was at the, the Central YMCA at that time. 
and um, the Senior Civic Association donated some funds and we organized and then we went to the Children's Board and at that time the Children's Board had a program that was for community youth and we participated in that. What was beautiful about that was that the, the Children's Board asked the why, kind of asked, but also because the Y received money from them as well. The Y became our big sister. And so they were able then to guide a new young organization and help us with so many of the things that's needed to develop an organization under the watchful eye of the, of the Y. Uh, Clem Miller was at this children's board at that time. And because of those, we were able to grow and really become a substantial organization. And it, it's still in business today, the Tampa... How many, it's been 25 years. How many kids do you think have moved through that program over the past 25 years? Oh, quite a number, several thousands. That uh, makes a huge difference, uh, I think, in the community. And that's just one of the things you're involved in. Having been in Tampa Heights for all this time, it's certainly a different place now than it was 40 years ago. What do you think about the way Tampa Heights has developed and grown? And this is, um, if you're not totally familiar with Tampa Heights, Armature Works is something that you're probably familiar with. That is part of Tampa Heights. So that was, I remember going to that building. It was a burned out, abandoned warehouse. And I went to nude night art shows there. Um, It was very uh, abandoned, that area. Now it's packed um, every night. What do you think about how Tampa Heights has changed? It has changed significantly. Um, Just with the CRA area, uh, while I was president of the Civic Association, I have a letter that we wrote to the then mayor to say that we wanted that to become a CRA. A CRA being a community redevelopment agency Agency, where the city would help uh, redevelop the the neighborhood. And property tax dollars are used to um, invest in that neighborhood rather than going into the general fund. Yeah. So it was getting some, it's for blighted areas, so it was getting some... Slum and blight. Yes. Right, right. Uh, Having worked, being... um, Working in the legislature, one of the great things about being in the legislature is that you learn about all of these many, many tools to help communities, among other things. And working with Senator Hargrit was one of the biggest pleasures because he was always focused on community and improving the community. And so being in the legislature, it was easy to get the information about community redevelopment agencies areas and uh, recognizing for us how beneficial it would be for Tampa Heights. Um, It couldn't have happened without the community, the Civic Association being behind it because there were many um, door-to-door and discussions that we had to have with neighborhoods to help them understand that this could really be an economic tool for Mm -hmm. Tampa Heights. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers with Tom and Janet um, on WMNF. And our guest today is Lena Young-Green, a longtime um, 
community activist and worker and supporter um, in the Tampa Bay area. So do you like, if you would like to join our conversation, if you have a question, you want to comment on what you think about Tampa Heights and the Armature Works area and how you've seen that change over the years, you can give us a call, 813-239-9663, or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. Um, we do have somebody who is... Um, Got an email from somebody, a text message, who says, um, I hate the, the ugly black box houses that are being built in Tampa Heights. Mm-hmm. Why isn't there a historical architectural overlay district like in Seminole Heights? Um, and Bubba loves your accent. Bubba, I love her accent, too. I could listen to <laughs> Lena talk all day. I might just replay this over and over again in the archives, which I encourage any of you to do if you would like to do that. What do you think about the new homes that are going in? You, you talked earlier about the beautiful old homes in Tampa Heights. I've heard a lot of people complaining about these new structures. Yeah. So um, back in the 1980s, later in the 1980s, again, working with the community, we got with Stephanie Farrell and some of the other mm-hmm community activists to create this the um, historic district. Uh, what happened was during ur- urban renewal and during the time when the city thought that they would clean up urban areas, they destroyed many of the beautiful old homes that we had starting from 1880s. Mm-hmm. And in creating the, uh, the, the historic district, there had to be a percentage of old homes that still remained in order to get that designation. Because so many of our homes had been lost with urban renewal and with fires that were happening regularly and just other decisions about tearing down old houses. Mm-hmm. We I remember lost, those fires. You remember, right? Mm-hmm. We lost a high percentage of our old homes. And so when we wanted to put the the historic district overlay all of Tampa Heights, we couldn't because we had lost too much of the core. Had we been able to do that and we were trying really hard, we couldn't because we lost too much. Um, but we did get a section of the community that is that is the local historic district and also the federal historic district. That, those, those areas have protection. They don't get all of the new modern houses. The other areas that we couldn't get covered, there is where there is no enforcement based on the historic aspect of the community. And that's where many of the, uh, those houses are going. We continuously try to fight them, but because the city does not have that tool. Back in 1980s, again, we had asked, the 1990s, we had asked the city to create that overlay district. That would have protected it would us. Have protected. What do you think about the new houses going in personally? Do you, do you have a thought on them at all? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, we work with them all the time. Our civic association meetings are long because there are so many of them, especially now. My personal preference is anything old that maintains that historic character of the right. district. Yeah. So the ones that are very modern, the boxes that are, to me, not attractive at all, those give me heartburn. <laughs> so yeah, I guess it's one of those things, you watch what you wish for. You were hoping Tampa Heights would be redeveloped and, and, and revitalized, and here it's happening, but there's always a downside to everything, right? Yes, yes. Uh, I was just saying that in hindsight, 
although we worked so hard to make sure laws and rules and ordinances addressed redeveloping our area, and although under the Civic Association, the Junior Civic Association particularly, our focus has been and continues to be supporting families and children that are economically challenged. One thing that we should have spent more time on was getting rules and regulations that would protect families that kept the diversity in Mm -hmm. our community. And we were so focused on the others, we did not do that. Although what we're going through is is the same thing going through nationally. So had we been more focused on that, perhaps we could have helped not only our local area, but that's what's happening now. Today we have houses right in Tampa Heights for one, two, and three million dollars, if you could believe that. Right, crazy. Um, we got a, an email from David Bryant who says, um, I'm sad to see the Jackson House in such yes. poor shape right now. It looks like it might fall down. Have you, now the Jackson House is a historical house that, is that considered Tampa Heights neighborhood? No. It's a little bit outside Tampa right. Heights. That's, that's in downtown, Central Park. Right? It's More downtown, Park. but that okay. is, uh, were you involved, have you been involved in that, those efforts to protect the Jackson House or that's out? Uh, that so, was out of, we had so much going on in Tampa Heights, but yeah. I Certainly, I'm feeling sad about that as well. Um, uh, let's take a break right now. Um, or actually, we have a phone call. Someone on the line. Let's take this phone call. Um, you're on the line. What's on your mind? Um, hi, this is Blanny. Hi, Blanny. Um, hey, how are you doing? Good. Well, I live in Tampa Heights, and right in that section uh, you were just talking about, which is between Boulevard and... Um, Tampa Street, mm-hmm. where they, the developers have gone crazy. Yes. And um, I understand about the historic site thing, and I know, it, and it's very, I've watched the deterioration of, of my neighborhood mm. and affordable housing leaving mm-hmm. the small historic houses. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like we don't, we only save the historic ones that are big. When they're small, we're not saving them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's and it's very frustrating. Every seems like every week another mm-hmm. one goes down. But can't the, I don't understand why the city still can't say, well, we want um, certain architecture. And then the other thing is height. Like right, I, we've lost our sunlight on one side of our house, and it's not going to be long before we lose it on the other due to these three-story buildings mm-hmm. with these giant walls. And of course, very. Lena is nodding. So you can't see her, but she is nodding. So what, what do you think? Yeah, and, and it's very, you know, it's frustrating that they have, basically, my neighbors have changed in the last three years. Absolutely From majority right. low to, to, you know, working class, you know, people to, and as well as the race has changed. Um, mm-hmm. it was, uh, no diversity. To, to predominantly now well-off white people. And um, and I don't know a lot of the neighbors because they don't have front porches. They drive into their garage. Right. And, and if they have friends over, there's all this, you know, the car situation. Mm-hmm. The, the parking, parking is, is crazy. Right. Um, the plumbing, it seems like every week there's a, a pipe that bursts because this neighborhood was meant for small, single families. And they've chased away families. And we have a lot of people from the north that have moved down 
Um, but I have one question to ask you. There, there's been a, there's, for example, one house in this area that has been empty ever since I've moved here, which was seven years ago. Um, another one that a year ago, you know, of course, a developer has bought it and the land just sits there. All those houses had been livable, but now they're sitting there. And of course, now they have an excuse to knock it down. Um, is there anything a, the city can do to say, you can't have an empty house for more than a year. You either need to sell it or do something with it. Huh. But they're letting it sit and rot. That's an interesting thought. Um, what do you think about that, Lena? Do you think that the, that's something that... And Blanny, thanks for the call. I appreciate it very much. Mm-hmm. Is, what do you think about that, um, Lena? Would, would, would that be helpful if they would not allow houses to sit vacant for a long period of time and put some limit on that? So there are a couple of answers to that. Every, in fact, just last night we had our civic association meeting and our meeting goes way too long because <laughs> we have to constantly address the development projects that are coming forward. One thing is that we cannot do things on our own. We have to have those people like Blanny, Les, that come together with the civic association so we could fight together. Mm-hmm. We can't fight with uh, one person over there, one person over there. We are all volunteers. So we need more people to come and join the Civic Association because numbers is power. And not just complain on Facebook. Right. right. Keyboard warriors have uh, their role to play, but there's a limit to that, right? And what you really are looking for, which I think all Civic Associations in every city are looking for, or boots on the ground. Yes. People like you who are rolling yes. up their sleeves, not complaining, well, complaining, but getting something done. Right, right. And our, the, the decision makers are elected officials. People cannot be elected without your vote, my vote, and the vote of everybody else. And if we understand our power by our vote, we'd come together in bigger no- numbers and we could force change. That's a fact. Well, on a local level, you can really do that because not that many people vote, especially in Tampa City elections, or I guess any, but they're at an odd time. They're in the spring. Um, and if you can mobilize people, you can really make a difference in who gets elected and who is making those decisions. Um, we have an email from Sheila Hage, I think I'm saying. Oh, Sheila Hage. <laughs> Formerly of Jefferson Street. She says, I was involved with Lena in the late 80s and 90s she in Tampa was. Heights. And with the Civic Association, I'm so happy to hear she is still working in the neighborhood and pleased that some of our work has resulted in wonderful changes in the neighborhood as a whole. It is sad that some of the development has resulted in changes that are not compatible with the historic sense of the neighborhood and the wonderful diversity that existed. I treasure my years in Tampa Heights. It's good to hear from Sheila. When I talk about the group of us that got together and took and asked for the United Wales grant, that included Sheila and her husband and my husband and myself. That's Wonderful. <laughs> well, she's listening to you. We got another email here from Charles Holsopel who says, I just left a visit at Meachin Urban, Urban Farms in Tampa Heights. Is that Tampa Heights? Actually, yeah. it's Central Park. Central Park, but near uh-huh. Tampa Heights. It is. Um, and he says it looks like a great program and an asset to the neighborhood. Do you have any thoughts on Meacham, Meacham Urban Farms? Well, Meacham is a part of our... our uh, 
Coalition of Community Gardens. Okay, so talk yes. about this is a good opportunity. We haven't talked about that yet. So talk about the commu- uh, Coalition of Community Gardens. Yeah, How so because you, you not only got involved in your civic association, then you started something else. Oh, that was just one other thing. It's just one other thing. We only have an hour, though. We don't have two hours. So, yes, talk yes, about yes. the community gardens. So, in um, in the late 1990s, uh, we decided that we were having so many developers coming into the community and um, bringing the ideas of the houses that are there now. That we decided we needed a community plan, a neighborhood plan. And we were the first neighborhood in the city of Tampa to actually get a community plan created. Mm -hmm. Um, Dick Greco was our mayor at that time. And we couldn't get any interest in developing our our neighborhood plan. And we would, it wasn't technology where you carried the the little phones around. There were those big boards, foam boards that we would take around. And everywhere where we heard he was, we would pop up with these phone boards and steal his thunder. Uh (laughs) Eventually, he asked the the planning commission to actually build our neighborhood plan. And so with our neighborhood plan, we were able then to put in the things. It took us four years, and we put in the things that the residents said they wanted. One of the things that they wanted was a community garden. Well, you were ahead of your time. We were. Right. We really were. The community was. And so um, 12 years ago, we started our community garden. And then, um, as you know, a few couple of years after that, when my husband passed away, one of our issues, even before he died, was health. And to improve health, we have to start growing our own groceries. And so from there, uh, Kitty Wallace with the, um, with the garden club, came and worked with us. She's still our community garden coordinator. We've got one of the most beautiful gardens in this area, award-winning, I must say. <laughs> and, um, and we created our garden. Well, the impact of that has been so great. It did more for community development for us than I ever expected. We were able to get the children to knit in with that. And so a few years later, we decided it was time for us to create a coalition of community gardens so that other communities we could support other communities that had gardens and encourage gardens in other places Meacham is a member of that that was before Meacham um, was built um uh, we've got a caller on the line that we're going to get to in just a minute, and we're also going to talk also about um, the tragic story of, of Lena's husband. Um, but first, let's um, take a little break to promote one of the uh, WMNF's awesome music shows. This You're listening to a public affairs show, but lots of great music on WMNF. Hey, what's going down, family? It's your resident chef, Big Eddie G, inviting you to the Soul Kitchen. Me and my assistant chef, Mr. White Pepper David Bryant, serve up the best of R&B and soul music with a pinch of hip-hop and jazz and a dash of fun. So stop by Friday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Bring your appetite, because the kitchen will show enough fill you up right. Here, only on 88.5 WMNF. Every Friday night, right after Steve the Hitman Williams. Steve the Hitman Williams, Williams, one of the also one of the best music shows on WMF. So we've got um, Justin on the line. Justin from Tampa Heights, you are on the line. What's on your mind? Hey, uh, 
Thanks for uh, taking my call. Lena, this is Justin, your neighbor. Uh, former, yeah, former uh, president. <laughs> board uh, representative. And I just wanted to comment on, you know, some of the development that's going on and the good and the bad and the ugly in some instances. But uh, it's, it's interesting. I, I moved into the neighborhood in 2015. I moved here from Washington, D.C. and uh, was an entry-level position at my job. And, and Tampa Heights was the only urban neighborhood that i could afford then and uh you know and two years ago we sold our house and moved about a half a a half a mile and we almost were priced out of the neighborhood at that point Mm -hmm. but i think but i think what we're seeing in the neighborhood really is a lot of -of out-of-state people coming in and seeing the value that i did back in 2015 Mm -hmm. it's just they have more purchasing power you know than i did then and and really it's kind of a tale of two neighborhoods at this point we've got everybody in the southwest quadrant that's seeing all this multifamily duplex high price uh development that you know I, I could never afford but we also have the northern parts of the neighborhood um that are still struggling with a lot of issues that have kind of legacy issues with the neighborhood and i just think that you know we had all these empty lots that we were desperate for development in for many years and now that it's here we're complaining that you know obviously the city didn't bring the form-based code from Seminole Heights down to Tampa Heights, as was, I think, promised many years ago. And that's part of the issue, that we just don't have the right controls in place. And, you know, we just didn't advocate, I guess, enough, and this is before my time, but those controls weren't put in place. So, and, you know, we were so desperate for this development that when I started on the board in 2015 or 16, we were happy to see anything. Some of it wasn't the most appealing, but now we're seeing it at the other end of the spectrum, and you know, we've got to just say, hey, we have our historic district. That's where the controls are in place to regulate this type of development. And we, as a community and as a city, didn't do our due diligence to put these controls into place to regulate the development outside of those boundaries in time. And now, you know, we just kind of have to take what we're getting. And it's really, we have to focus where we can on certain issues. And the ship has really sailed. Mm-hmm. There are not many empty lots left. You know, I love preserving some old houses. I've got a 1925 myself, but I'm still considering the development potential of that lot for my own personal financial interest long term. So it's a really complicated issue. Um, You know, there's a transit-oriented development study that's going on that's looking into how the development occurs. I personally think we should focus on the Florida and Tampa corridors and how multifamily housing is going to help prevent further displacement in the neighborhoods how we should add ADUs by right so that the families that have been here for a really long time can get more income on their property by renting units. And uh, I think that it's a, it's a very complicated issue, and uh, I just wanted to throw that out there for the conversation. And Lena, I'll see you soon, I'm sure. Okay, Justin. Thanks for so the much. call, Justin. Appreciate it very much. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers with Janet and Tom and WMNF, and our guest is Lena Young-Green, a longtime um, com- neighborhood advocate and community activist. Um, so let's move on, Lena, to this the very tragic story of your husband, um, Arthur Green, who died in 2014 at the hands of the Tampa Police Department. Tell us, I, I know it's difficult, but tell us what happened um, that evening um, when he died, he was driving down Hillsborough Avenue, I think, or you'll know, you can tell me, but he was having a diabetic seizure and was pulled over by the police. Tell us what happened. Yes. So, um, 
That afternoon, I had left him sitting on the porch, and uh, he always goes to the corner store to get his coffee, not too far from the house. And his sugar dropped, apparently, when he got into the truck, and he turned left instead of right. And based on, none of us were there, but based on the witnesses, he was driving very slowly, He turned um, going to Central Avenue and then made another turn on Central Avenue coming towards back home. Somebody, um, we have the 911 tape, called and said, called 911 and said, there's a person in this vehicle. They described my husband's vehicle and they said, the person is either ill or they're under the influence. The person is either ill or under influence. The tape, when you listen to the tape, the person, while they they kept her on the phone, she said it three times that he may be ill or under influence. From our perspective, all the police department heard was under the influence. There was an officer who had just been awarded some uh, given some award for having um, a, arrested or being involved in in people who are under the influence had gotten an award from mm-hmm. Mad. He was the one that actually turned up. So from our perspective, always in his head that my husband was drunk or under some influence. So he turned on Central and he went over the line, driving very slowly. This is from the tapes. And he went over the yellow line and ended up on the side of that road. He bumped a car and he, he pulled up on the side of the road. By the time he got there, the call had gone out to all of these officers that there was a drunk driver. The officer got there first. And he opened my husband's door. Now, this we could see on the tape. He reached over, and it appears that he took the keys out of my husband's, uh, out of the ignition. He stood there. He stood there with my husband's door open. My husband's in the seat, and you could hear my husband say, but I didn't didn't do anything wrong. What did I do wrong? And he stood there, obviously, the time that he stood there waiting for backup, if my husband was a threat, he wouldn't have done that. He stood there right inside the door next to my husband. The other officers came, and they came in a swarm. All my husband needed at that time, what he needed was at, at that time, was somebody just to give him something that was sweet. Uh. And his sugar would have come up, and then they could understand what was wrong with him. We didn't hear the officer ask, are you ill? We didn't hear anything about even thinking that my husband might... And my husband was in his 60s. He wasn't a threat. He was sitting there. He was ill. If a person's sugar dropped as low as that, you look in the eyes and you could see that there is no focus or something. And then the other officers came 
and his sugar is really, really low. And they pulled him out of the car. The officer would have sat on his shoulder, put him on his stomach. He's dying. They sat on his shoulder, pushed their legs into his shoulder. This officer went to his car to get the hog tie for my husband's foot. In the deposition, when they asked him, that he, did he recognize anything about, about a diabetic? He admitted that looking at his foot before they hog tied him, that he saw something that might have made him think that he was a diabetic. Hmm. And it, uh, for all of those times that they held him there, finally... Well, they were telling him not to... Kept not telling him to not resist. to resist. And then eventually he just... By the time he yeah. stopped resisting, he had, he had passed. Yeah, that's why. And you went, for, for, went through the courts for eight years on that. It was not until July... Of, of last year. Of last year, of 2022, that you reached a settlement with the city of Tampa. Well. And I, and I'll, I can talk for you for a little bit because I know some of what happened here. So then there was also, there created a, in his name a foundation. Um, and then in 2015, um, there was a law passed, a state law passed that, that, uh, provides for training in recognizing a diabetic emergency. It's not um, required. It is not required. Um, And I believe also, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Tampa Police Department procedures were changed as a result of this um, and, and how they handle people who are being restrained. We are not, you can't leave them once they have their hands behind their back. They're supposed to put them on their side. They can't leave them on their, on their stomachs anymore. Right. Um, so some changes were made yeah. um, as a result of that. Um, but one of the things that I understand is that you are disappointed that the family is disappointed that you've not received any kind of apology from the city or the police department or the mayor. Even though they've all known you yes. for all this time, they have no known did they, you. Did they admit that they, there, there was wrongdoing? That they, or did they refuse? Did they just say, "Take some money," and there's no apology? So what happened? We we filed a federal lawsuit at the beginning, and with the federal law, it we we looked at his civil rights being violated, and at the, uh, and as a disabled person. Mm-hmm. The federal uh, judges, we did the appeal with them, and they threw out the the immunity, which is happening everywhere, which does not hold people. Um, they were immune. The police department, yes. as a government agency, there's immunity from the police department for the police department. Because of that, it the case got kicked back down to the state. At the state level, there's a limited amount of um, the the state has a law that says there is only. 250,000 that in cases like ours, we could possibly Mm -hmm. get. We had uh, the judge ordered us to arbitration, and the arbitrator found that the city was 100% responsible for my husband's death. Although the city was trying to tell the judge that we were responsible, that my husband was responsible for knowing he had diabetes and still driving, and I had responsibility 
somewhere in there. That was their position. Well, <laughs> that's, I mean, people with diabetes need to drive. It's, you know. <laughs> and that's totally, totally. Ridiculous. Yes. Yeah. And so after going back and forth for eight years, we decided we would go ahead and go with the settlement because we were able to get two things um, that we wanted that were really important. See, losing my husband, we can't bring him back, but his death had to result in something that helped our community. Big number of people throughout the, the, in, throughout the nation has diabetes. And if my husband's case could be help, a help to other people, we needed to do all of that. Well, we did get that um, agreement and the city that actually changed the rule on the hog tying of a person when that you just referred to. Mm-hmm. And we did get the settlement for the 250000 half of which um, was attorney fees, but, but it's something. When you file something legal, that's what makes a difference also. And saying that we got something because of the behavior, it helps to change behavior, change policy. And so we went with that. But having the, the law, um, having the case not accepted at the federal government Allowed, brought it down to the state, and those were the, our options. You lost your first husband also when you were very early. Before we leave that, if you don't okay. mind, yep. I want to talk about the fact that although this mayor knew about my husband, knew how much community work my husband had always done, knew how our family worked in the community, she was the chief of staff, uh, chief um, at the police department. In 2014, she, she was? She was the police chief. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What would it take for to say to our family publicly that we are sorry that this happened? And we did not get that. And, and we believe we still deserve that. It, 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 in some ways, it's part of, of, of healing. Yeah. You start by saying... We were wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah. And yes. so Mayor Jane Castor has yet to do that, and you're still looking for that from her, specifically the mayor. Not sure that I'm looking for it from her. It, that puts you in a victim's position. It's just what should happen. If, if you're human, there's something in humanity that you should do, and that's something that doesn't... Well, it could cause, because... Legally, right. You know, That's why they don't legal. do it. Yeah. After they're, all they're, of these, they're worried all, about the legal implications of right. saying sorry because it implies that maybe they did something wrong. After going through all of this and the depositions and all the investigations, uh, how did what did you what do you think actually caused this 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 disaster that occurred that day that could have been solved so easily? What 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 was in the officer's mind? That training, that training is so important. So there was a case similar to my husband's own in Philadelphia. And they, they um, created a, they had a, 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 a lawsuit that actually changed many places throughout the nation where the Philadelphia police actually walk with candies in their hands. Uh-huh. And just, or something, or even that's, that um, there's a tablet that's, ve- that's very sugar-based, 
that brings up the sugar. And they are trained now to recognize there is the, the look in the eye to check and see what the person looks like. You smell. If you don't smell liquor, then there is something else right. likely. Right. And that's the training. And that's why the lawsuit had to be, for, for, had to be filed. And thankfully, to my work in the legislature with uh, Representative Edna Rain, who actually, and Tom Lee, who carried this law. Okay. A Democrat and a Republican. Go. Yes. Didn't let go until it passed. Luckily, we got that passed. But, but it's still only optional. Yes. And it, that's the next fight is to get that from, from being optional to actually saying throughout the, the, throughout the state. We even got calls from Georgia and some other places who have now started to put those laws in place. Are so, you satisfied the Tampa Police Department is training their officers uh, correctly, or is that still something that needs to be done? Still need well, the the, the laws are there. It was changed. Um, what we don't find is when we ask police officers, are they trained on the street? They say no. The ones that we've talked to, so there is some disconnect that's happening. But the well, probably it's not happening. There. <laughs> be my guess that it's not happening. I, I do have to ask, though, as I said, you were starting to say you lost your first husband very early. Um, and then this horrible tragedy that happened in 2014 with, your, your, with Arthur. And yet you continue with your good humor um, to fight for and work for improving the city. And I'm wondering where do you get your... Strength is it? Are you a religious person, or how do you carry on after something like that and continue to engage in a positive way with um, people who had such disregard, reckless disregard for your your husband's life? We're put on earth for some reason, and when we get to our last days, we have to think that we've done something. Um, this has been generational in my family, um, way back, and we each learned from our previous families, our pre previous generations, and um, what we do is just in our DNA. If you don't do for others, then you get into that small world and you get so closed in and you really can't function. The way to be most effective and the way to actually get up every day and do the same thing and continue to do it is the strength and the, the reward that you get from doing for others. Uh -huh. And if you don't do that, then what are you going to do? You talked about that being in your DNA from the time you were young. What was it in Belize? What did you do with your parents? How did they instill that in you? What were, were you engaged in your community and active there? Yeah, well, actually, my, my mother was from Spanish Honduras. Okay. And um, even back then, and then they moved to Belize, and my, grandfa my grandfather was from Belize. But even back then, our family had always been community leaders, always. Uh, my grandfather actually was a leader in the Garvey movement, all the way back then. Wow. And, um, and in Belize, a small country, uh, one of the things that we knew that no matter who came to the door, friend or not known, friend not knowing if we are having dinner, the table gets extended and there's another plate and the 
your portion gets smaller, <laughs> but there's another plate and that's required. If a friend comes in and it's too late at night, we get moved over into each other's bed and there's a bed made for that person. And then working in the community is, that's just what you do. If there's something to be done in the community, you do it. And that's been a part of us all the time. And and why be stay with the grassroots and not... Why don't we see you on a ballot? Why don't I get to vote for you? <laughs> Actually, um, working in the legislature is probably the highest level of learning about policy. And I thoroughly enjoy that. Um, as Belizeans, we are very political, very much so. 98, 97% of Belizeans vote in an election. Wow. That's when I was growing up. And that's just what you do. So um, policymaking and involved with government is something that we always do. That's, you have to have knowledge about that. You have to learn that. You have to learn what changes government, what changes policy. So it's not only there, but then when you learn that, you bring it home to your grassroots. Because if we just understand how much we could change policies we would be very, very much involved at the grassroots and that's where we have to get the work done. What advice do you have for people who would like to get involved but don't know where to start? What, do you, what would you suggest that they do? There are always someone around, some, some other people who have the feeling that you have. If you see something and you say, somebody ought to do something about this, you look in the mirror and you say, we ought to do something about this. And once you step out, it's amazing how many people, other people have some of those same ideas. They might want to do it differently and then you'll have to be select, selective. But I believe that basically people are like that, that they want to help their communities. And, when, and you got started with a, with a neighborhood watch, a, yes. a crime watch and, and the neighborhood association and, is, you know, Maybe that's a good place to start. Well, maybe getting to know your neighbors might be a good start exactly. too, right? So many of our neighborhoods are filled with strangers. They don't know each other, and when you don't know your neighbors, it's hard to collectively organize and get things done, right? But everybody, everyone didn't know someone at first. Right. We were all strangers at some point. Right. Well, Lena, thanks so much for being on the show today. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and thanks for all you do for our community. Um, thanks to everyone who called and everyone who emailed. Um, and thanks to Irene for answering the phones for us today. We love you, Irene. Um, stay tuned for the NPR News, which is up next, followed by great music from Harrison Nash. This is WMNF Tampa. 